welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in and coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show, thank you so much. Hope you've had a chance to go over to Counterpunch and get yourself a subscription to Counterpunch Plus, or at least have considered it, or maybe you're hearing about it for the first time. That is our subscriber section. There's exclusive content there. You're not going to find it anywhere else. We have investigative pieces. We have book reviews. We have music criticism, film stuff, all kinds of excellent and interesting left-wing analysis from all sorts of very interesting voices. Please do support Counterpunch and continue the independent media project that's been going now for gosh, almost 30 years. Um, And speaking of institutions on the left that absolutely must be paid attention to and supported in every way possible, Dave Zirin is back on the show with me today. Uh, We love Dave. Dave is, of course, the sports editor at The Nation. Every time he comes on, he's got so much to say, and he's got a new book that we are going to promote here tonight, The Kaepernick Effect, Taking a Knee, Changing the World. Get yourselves a copy of this absolutely critical book, especially for young people in your lives, people who maybe uh, need to catch up on the last eight, nine, ten years of history that really does uh, kind of fold into a lot of what we're going to talk about here. Uh, You should also listen to Dave's podcast. That's the Edge of Sports podcast. Get it wherever you get your podcast. Dave, welcome back to Counterpunch. Uh, Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for all the great work and for the new book. I'm so excited to give it to my mother-in-law for Christmas this year, uh, The Kaepernick Effect. Talk to me about it. Obviously, I'm going to lead with the broadest and most inane question I'm going to ask. What is The Kaepernick Effect? Well, The Kaepernick Effect is the chain reaction that occurred after Colin Kaepernick first took first sat during the anthem and then took a knee in August and September of 2016 and the way it it affected the lives of hundreds, if not thousands of young athletes, uh, red state, blue state, men's sports, women's sports, uh, for taking a knee. And that's what the book is really about. It's about the stories of these young folks. And I really came up for the idea idea to do this uh, out of a sense of urgency um, I was in a conversation with John Carlos, the 1968 Olympian, who, of course, raised his fist on the medal stand. Um, and John Carlos said to me in a very offhand way, you know, there were a lot of young people who raised their fist after I did in Mexico City, like little, like, like young people at track meets and things like that. And that immediately sent my brain worrying, like, like, whoa, who were these people? You know, what happened to them? They raised their fist and what was the repercussion? And I knew I'd never really get the answers to those questions because it's been over 50 years. It would be impossible to find out and figure out. But it really did make me think of the kind of one-off stories, a lot of which, not a lot, but some of which I'd written, you know, about athletes who'd taken a knee and had garbage thrown at them, athletes who took a knee and got kicked off their team, athletes who took off a knee and got kicked out of their college. You know, these stories were ones that I had written, but... I'd never really looked at it holistically, like what does it mean that all of these athletes took a knee? What does that say about the idea of this being more of a movement? And what does it say about maybe decentering Colin Kaepernick, the individual, and looking more at the effect of Colin Kaepernick and how it affected all these young people's lives? Maybe that's the real story here. Uh, and so that's what the book was going to be. And I was writing it at the start of the pandemic, interviewing dozens of young athletes, Fortunately, they were all home with nothing to do, so they were willing to talk to me. And then the summer of 2020 happened. George Floyd is murdered by Officer Derek Chauvin, and 
the result of that is the largest protests in the history of the United States in the summer of 2020 that hit all 50 states. So I went back and I called all the people I'd interviewed up to that point. And to a person, they were all either in the streets or organizing people to get into the streets. And that made me realize that, you know, maybe the focus of the book isn't just, you know, remembering these voices and preserving this history, but it's also about explaining that while many roads may have led to 2020, uh, one of them runs straight through the playing fields of the United States. Yeah, and one of the really interesting things in in the book too is, as you were alluding to, it's not about really Colin Kaepernick at all. It's really about something much larger than him. And um, one of the running themes that I think really ties a lot of these stories together is uh, the touchstone, maybe the touchstone event, maybe the seminal moment for a lot of these people. The uh, the what do we mm-hmm. want to call it? The murder, the assassination of Trayvon Martin now, I yeah. guess, 10 years ago almost. So can you talk a little bit about Trayvon and how that was a touchstone for these people, given their ages, given where they come from, et cetera? Yeah. I mean, it was fascinating to me that when I asked them what their inspiration was for taking that knee, uh, what I heard less often than uh, the name Colin Kaepernick was the name Trayvon Martin. That was just really at first surprising to me. And it started to become this trend where almost everybody was talking about Trayvon Martin. And it forced me to really take a step back and think, you know, wow, Trayvon Martin was was stalked and murdered in 2012. You know, that's a long time ago. And so if I'm talking to a 19-year-old, that means they're probably 11 years old when... Trayvon Martin is stalked and murdered and no justice was, was given to his family. And it made me think a lot about what it means to be 10, 11 years old. I have a 13 year old and it's like, you're old enough to know what's going on in the world, but also young enough to want to demand more of the world. And that's what happened to these young people. I think it changed them inexorably to see the whole process of Trayvon Martin and the George Zimmerman trial. Um, And as for me, it made me also think a lot about interviews I'd seen with civil rights activists when they speak about Emmett Till and this idea that while there were many murders in the Jim Crow South, the lynching of Emmett Till stayed with them in a way that was very, felt very personal and was something that they carried with them as they got involved in the broader struggles of the day. And I really felt an echo of that in how these young people spoke about Trayvon Martin. It's interesting, too, because uh, the period leading from Trayvon Martin to the murder of Mike Brown and the events in Ferguson a few years later, that is also sort of the, the, the counterpoint to that is sort of the trigger of this Blue Lives Matter cop worshiping extremism that you see on the right. That's when that Blue Lives Matter flag yeah. comes about. And so the these young people of color primarily standing up for themselves over those couple of years really did create much of the backlash that we're all living through still today. Yeah, I mean, if you want to talk about critical race theory or attacks on the right to vote, I mean, these things come directly, I would argue, out of the protests in 2020. And this, I mean, because that's the story of America. Anytime Black people and assorted allies assort their humanity and assort their citizenship, there's always this kind of backlash that takes place among the most revanchist elements of society. Um, But that makes it all the more important to step out there and really expose that these elements still exist. And I think that that's what Colin Kaepernick 
was able to do. And of course, all the people affected by him and took a knee were able to do. I think it revealed in advance of this horrific coming out party we've seen over the last year, uh, the last several years, uh, it, or going to Charlottesville. I mean, there's so many examples we can give, but it exposed it early on in a way that was really direct and personal. And when you drill down on the polls, as far as what people think about Colin Kaepernick taking a knee, people always say, oh, it polarized America. And I always feel like I got to respond to that in two ways. I mean, first is to say, well, Colin Kaepernick didn't polarize America at all. Police violence and racism polarized America. And then the second part of that is to say, well, if you look at the statistics, it's not really America that's polarized over this gesture during the anthem. It's actually white America that's polarized. Because if you look at the statistics of black and brown folks, they support the right of somebody to, to enact civil disobedience in the name of fighting racism. Among, it's among white people where the conversation is really divided. And like this kind of 60-40 split against of people, you know, really disagreeing about whether or not, I mean, because that, that's the, the, the white community, that's the terms of the debate right now, is racism real? Are white people the real victims of racism? And, you know, and, and it's people who see through that right-wing garbage, which is just the same repackaged shit we've been hearing for decades and decades in this country, um, and, and have said, that's enough. Yeah, indeed. Now, I wanted to ask you, um, well, you know what? Before before we move to another subject, I want to just follow up on that. Last time you you and I chatted, we talked a little bit about football and about Kaepernick, and specifically something that's always been fascinating for me is the fact that the fact that this protest happened in the NFL, which is so notoriously exploitive of black bodies and dis the disposability of black bodies in the NFL, even more than any other professional league, and making you think about the disposability of black bodies on the streets at the hands of the police and so forth, right? That there was something deeply symbolic about the fact that it was this particular person doing it in this particular league at this particular moment that was, you know, for lack of a better word, kind of like the tinderbox. No, exactly. And it was also a tinderbox because the National Football League is the biggest sport in the United States. It's this multi, multi-billion dollar business. Uh, someone once said that owning a National Football League franchise is like being a bartender at spring break. You know, you, you're going to make money no matter how horrible you are at it. I mean, it's, it's an open cash register. It's a golden goose. But it all depends on a level of racial labor discipline that if you don't have that racial labor discipline, the whole thing falls apart. And the racial labor discipline is necessary because of this grand contradiction that you just described. It's built on the disposability of black lives and black bodies. And yet the ownership class is almost entirely white. Same with executives, same with coaches. And that that, that is they have to somehow keep that under wraps. They somehow have to keep the lid on that particular boiling pot. And when Colin Kaepernick took that knee, I think it upset the franchise owners and the like. Uh, and I think this is the reason why he's been uh, colluded against and turned into a league pariah. Um, it, it has to do with the fact that it's not just that he was talking about police brutality and racial inequity. It's that he was doing what he was not supposed to do. 
he was acting outside the parameters of what they expect from their black laborers. And that made it scarier than even the issues he was raising. And there's a tradition of that too. I mean, the reaction in the Jim Crow South because people wanted more fair seating on buses or people wanted water fountains that weren't separated by the color of their skin. These are such small asks, you know, like cleaner water, a place to sit on the bus. And yet the response was wildly, wildly, wildly hysteric, not because people gave a damn about those particular things, but because it was challenging the order of the way things were supposed to be. And I think Colin Kaepernick did something very similar. No question. And it also raised this other uh, debate, which rages from time to time about whether or not politics and sports can be kept separated. And Kaepernick sort of, in, in a sense, did us all a favor by kind of exploding that and basically forcing the two into the conversation, right? Not allowing it to be this sort of apolitical space where people can just go and play on the field and whatever, right? It's that that there is no such thing as an apolitical sport or an apolitical right. event. And this is something that, you know, some of us have been arguing for a very long time that politics is really baked into the cake of sports. And what Colin Kaepernick did was expose it. You see, politics and sports have just always been there because sports are built on this myth of inclusion and this reality of exclusion. And it's been that way since the 19th century. You know, this myth of inclusion that anybody who tries hard enough can make it and it's the level playing field and it's the best reflection of the United States of America. But then the reality of exclusion, you know, women not allowed to play black and brown folks go to the side, start your own leagues. We don't care. Do whatever you want. So the entire history of sports has been this fight for access. It's always been this hyper politicized space. And that's also why the politics have never been able to just stay inside the lines either. So we associate the civil rights movement with Jackie Robinson or the sixties with Muhammad Ali or the women's movement with Billie Jean King. And now the black lives matter movement with not only Colin Kaepernick, but a whole host of athlete actors from the WNBA uh, to major league baseball. I mean, th this is a politicized time and sports is not immune from that. Well, and you mentioned some of the prominent figures uh, that we could probably point to and that maybe will make an appearance in the history books alongside Colin Kaepernick. But there's certainly, and this is where your book really comes in handy, there's so many whose names probably won't make it into the quote unquote history books. Um, well, now that there's the Kaepernick effect, I guess they will. But tell me a little bit about Garfield High School in Seattle. Uh, what happened at Garfield High School? What was the situation there? And I guess more generally, how was it indicative of a broader experience? Yeah, I like the Garfield High story because, first of all, uh, it involves an entire team. That's the football team. And uh, these were folks that uh, were fed up with, with racism and police brutality. It started with just a couple of players, uh, one of whom I interview in the book, Jelani. And uh, Jelani made it very plain in our conversations. Like there was the police killed a, a pregnant woman in front of her children when she called the police to her house because she thought an abusive ex-lover was breaking into her home. And, so, and within five minutes, she shot dead. I mean, it's an unbelievable story and it didn't make national news, but in Seattle, the impact was felt really strongly. And so they felt like, okay, we have to do something. You know, let's take a knee. And the coach, Joey Thomas, he heard about it and he did something very interesting. A lot of the coaches in the stories I tell, they try to do whatever they can to shut protests down, uh, to keep the authoritarian structure, which is such a part of sports in this country. 
And Joey Thomas did it differently. And instead he got the team together and they debated together as a team, as a family. You know, we always told that cliche that a team is like a family. Joey Thomas tried to live it. And after hearing from their black teammates, the white players on the team agreed that, okay, we all take a knee together because we all stand together on this. And it quickly spread uh, to the softball team, to the girls' soccer team, um, and it changed the mood of the school to something very positive. And yet, even in liberal Seattle, Joey Thomas's tires get slashed, death threats called into the school. The school system institutionally forces Joey Thomas out of his job. You know, Seattle born and raised, and now he coaches in Florida because it was where he could get work. Uh, so it's interesting to me that you see the backlash effect, even in a place like Seattle, that's so liberal, it exposes something about this country. But there's another part of the story too, and that's Joey Thomas's approach to this situation. You know, I always see coaches in one or two categories. I got this from uh, ball, former Baltimore Colt, Joe Ehrman, who said, you know, there are two kinds of coaches, the, trans the transactional and the transformational. Uh, the transactional coach is in it for them and how coaching makes them feel and how it makes them look. The transformational is about, first and foremost, the young people under their charge and helping them grow and flower as individuals. And Joey Thomas was one of those transformational coaches. A couple of the other coaches I talked to in the book, like Preston Brown, these are transformational coaches, but they're too few and far between. And a lot of very good young people had to suffer because of it. And there's also something really interesting as you as you read these stories and you follow, you know, sort of what's happened to them, you know, after the spotlight has gone away. And it's simultaneously uh inspiring and 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 heroic, and yet there aren't necessarily happy endings, as you just mentioned. No. No, there aren't happy endings. I mean, if you end up kicked off of your team, more often the, the endings are unhappy than happy, frankly. You know, they they have to sort of taste what it feels like to get a death threat and feel like they're unsafe or their family's unsafe. People have lost friends, spots on teams. But the interesting thing is, is when I spoke to them, nobody had any regrets. You know, and especially when summer of 2020 came around, a lot of them felt vindicated. So they were like, we, we helped lay the groundwork for this. They really felt that in their hearts. We helped lay the groundwork for this, this reckoning in this country around race. You know, and now our country is this, as my friend Jesse Agopian says, he calls it a boundless satire. Like we now live in a country where Juneteenth is going to be a holiday, yet in Texas, they're not allowed to teach about Juneteenth. I mean, it's it's the most bizarre set of circumstances that we're living under now. But, you know, the, the, these divisions are re real. I think that's what Howard Zinn said. He said, like, he said, there's nothing wrong with being divisive if you're speaking about real divisions. And these divisions are real. So being divisive is almost like a, a compliment in this context because it means you're not papering over the fact that you have part of this country that thinks that white people are the number one victims of racism and then other people who live in reality. One of the other things, Dave, I want to commend you on, of course, is uh, in terms of your coverage of all of these issues, is the uh, focus that you've put on centering women, women who have led in, in many ways on a lot of these issues. I know, of course, the uh, the U.S. women's soccer team that you wrote about, but uh, one of the stories that was really touching was the story of Alyssa Parker in Iowa um, and what she was involved in in terms of her protest and what she was facing. Can you tell us a little bit about Alyssa Parker and maybe how she might be something of an avatar for many other? women of color? Yeah. I mean, Alyssa Parker's story is, is really intense. And I actually just heard from Alyssa 
who was really, you know, happy with how the book turned out and, you know, what it said about her and her experience. And that's, of course, extremely gratifying to hear, you know, when, when you write something and they appreciate it. Um, but Alyssa Parker, you know, she took her knee not in Seattle, Washington, but in Steve King country, you know, Storm Lake, Iowa. You know, that's Steve King country. It's known as that. It's named after the former white supremacist congressman who was voted out of office in 2020. And Alyssa Parker was in Storm Lake uh, because to, to, to take a knee at a tiny college called Buena Vista. And again, with a lot of folks, it was Trayvon Martin, you know, when Alyssa was just 14, that made her want to act out and do something. And she started uh, the school's first black student union. And it was during a BSU meeting where the discussion turned to Colin Kaepernick. And she thought, you know, we, we have to do something. You know, we need to do something. He's doing something. We have to do it. And so Alyssa then becomes one of the cheerleaders in the book who takes a knee. And I think this is really interesting, like the role of cheerleaders in the narrative of the book and the fact that they're represented in the book because they have some interesting common threads too. I mean, being a cheerleader, I mean, sometimes people look at that and they see, they, they don't see that these folks can be political actors in sports. They're cheerleaders. They're there to cheer on the team. You know, it's almost some people even see it as a reactionary construct, cheering on the football squad. But cheerleaders, when you talk to them, they see themselves as the face of the school. You know, they see themselves as representing the institution. And so taking a knee has this very powerful effect because it's saying that not everything is okay. And we as an institution are not going to pretend that everything's okay. So people like Alyssa really saw themselves as part of this uh, broader struggle um, and was able to make quite an impact. Her story went went really big when it happened um, because they basically forced her out of the school, I mean, for doing it. And, you know, it started with, it's so interesting in that it started with like the school president trying to play nice with them and then getting really serious with them. And you see that there's no hero school president in any of these books. They're all petrified that kids taking a knee is just going to mess everything up and turn everything absolutely batty. And another thing about Alyssa's story, I saw this in other stories as well. I find this so interesting is that there's an effort to try to steer the protest a little bit like, okay, how about you wear black t-shirts when you're introduced? Or how about you wear a sash? How about basically do anything except taking a knee? Like this near hysterical, like fear of the knee becomes very real in a lot of these institutions because they know that's what's going to set alumni off. That's what's going to set right-wing fans off. And like, it's like, okay, talk about, we'll even get you Black Lives Matter t-shirts. Just don't take the knee. And I, I just find that very fascinating. I mean, it, it's so interesting. Like the knee has become this uh, universalized symbol where if you take a knee, no matter where it is, people know exactly what you stand for and exactly what you're doing. And um, a lot of the people in the book, they, they found that out the hard way. And not to put too uh, uh, poetic of a point on it, but it was also a knee on George Floyd's neck. Well, that's been a real topic of conversation in a lot of these interviews I've done is that juxtaposition, particularly because when you would go to protests, you know, people did that themselves, uh, put it on billboards, uh, not billboards, um, put it on poster boards, put them on signs, like this tale of two knees 
was a very real bookend from from 2016 to 2020. And this this idea that, okay, we tried to do this peacefully for years. And now you're saying like, oh, why aren't you pursuing police reform in a peaceful manner? And it's just like, you, you, you didn't he- heed or hear anything that was being said on these athletic fields across the country. And now you're asking for peace when what's wanted, of course, is justice, not peace. And there was no justice to be found. Um, the other thing is so interesting is I was just in Minneapolis and I went to George Floyd Square where all the murals are and whatnot. I was, this is just earlier this week. And I thought it was fascinating that there's this uh, looming picture of our mural of Colin Kaepernick on one knee. You know, it's just like people feel that very close to their hearts, even if they're not NFL fans, even if they don't even particularly care if Colin Kaepernick gets another job and all the debates that we've had to suffer through about this one individual. um, You know, it's much more about what he represented and the effect that his actions had. Let's take a quick break. On the other side of the break, there's so much more to discuss with Dave Zirin. Again, the book, The Kaepernick Effect, Taking a Knee, Changing the World. Uh, Listen to the music. We'll be right back. chatting with Dave Zirin here on Counterpunch Radio. Follow Dave on Twitter at Edge of Sports. Do listen to the Edge of Sports podcast as well. And of course, 
the uh, the holidays are just around the corner. The Kaepernick effect is such an important uh, gift that you could give, especially to young folks who really could 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 use it as a as a touchstone for their own political and maybe even emotional and psychological growth. Um, so, Dave, I want to talk a little bit about Kaepernick just to close up this, and then I want to close out our conversation with some other sports stuff real quick. Um, the memory of the memory of Colin Kaepernick. Uh, did the NFL successfully memory hole Colin Kaepernick? I mean, we're talking about him, but the NFL has moved on. People still watch it. I still see people walking around with jerseys on Sunday mornings and, you know, whatever. And the NFL's still raking in billions, et cetera. So from the NFL's perspective, did anything really meaningful happen? Meaningful, that's a different discussion. But has the anything changed? A lot has changed. I mean, the NFL has realized that it can't function with the profound racial contradiction that we talked about earlier with the racial labor discipline that Colin Kaepernick was bucking up against. So now we have, you know, the Black National Anthem sang before games. Now we have slogans in the end zone. Now we have decals that they can put on helmets that say things like Black Lives Matter or It Takes All of Us. Uh, now they have a social justice committee inside the league that players can be a part of. And now we have like these contributions that NFL franchise owners make uh, in the millions uh, to support various programs and whatnot that deal with youth empowerment. But we have to understand all of this is just carrot and stick. You know, it's it's their their efforts to try to keep any sort of activism that might emerge in the league under some very safe parameters that the NFL themselves have constructed. The last thing they want is more Colin Kaepernick's. And that's why they've decided that Colin Kaepernick has more value as a ghost story than he does as somebody who can help a team to the Super Bowl, you know, somebody they can use to haunt other players. So I don't think Colin Kaepernick's been memory hold. I think his just the uses of Colin Kaepernick have changed dramatically. And if you heard the news as we're doing this broadcast, um, the NFL announced what its halftime show was going to be. And it's going to be it's being produced by Jay-Z and it's going to be like Dr. Dre and Eminem and Snoop. And in terms of it being Dr. Dre being a part of it, uh, my friend Lewis Moore, uh, he tweeted it so so perfectly. He said, the guy in the middle, because in the picture, Dre is right in the middle, says the guy in the middle has a song called Fuck the Police, and the company putting this on is blacklisting a player because he asked for police accountability. Do I got this right? And yeah, that's just another lesson in the the, the boundless satire that is the NFL and the United States of America. But the NFL, much like the United States of America and much like capitalism as a whole, uh, successfully co-opted the opposition to it, didn't they? Because they, you know, and I mean, we don't have to go into well, all of the nitty- them off at the head. I mean, I mean, because Colin Kaepernick, Eric Reed, Kenny Stills, these folks weren't co-opted. I mean, they, they were they were catapulted. Uh, out of the league to haunt or, or use as a stick on players to make sure everybody thinks that everything is going to be okay. Right. And they were, they were the ones who were sort of cast out of Eden, as it were, while other select players who were willing to sort of play ball and be the, uh, you know, the quote unquote social justice face for the NFL, right? Wasn't there a whole committee that was created? I forget who the guy was from the, from the uh, Washington uh, football organization. Um, 
I'm blanking on his name, but they had several prominent players who kind of were like the anti-Kaepernick, anti-Eric Davis kind of, uh, or Eric Reed, excuse me, anti-Eric Reed uh, players. Eric Davis growing up. Yeah, I know. Of course, me too. Eric Davis Davis was a hero in my home growing up, but uh, Eric Reed, uh, somebody I interviewed for the book and his, his, he, we talk about that. I mean, and th- this is, I mean, this is just like the oldest okie doke in the book. It's like, let's promote some players and show that we're open to these ideas while also making sure we punish players that we think need to be punished. I mean, it's staggering. So have they gotten away with it? Of course they've gotten away with it. They're the NFL. They'll get away with anything, but does Colin Kaepernick still haunt their minds? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's something that I think it's a tinderbox. I mean, things may be at a, an ebb right now, but you know, movements have their ebbs and flows, and it's a situation that really hasn't resolved itself. And having a social justice committee isn't going to resolve it. One of the other interesting things, again, I'm not going to go too far on this tangent, <clears throat> excuse me, but one of the other interesting things about it is that I, and correct me if I'm wrong, Dave, but I didn't see much in the way of. Uh, union efforts among the players in, in in the sense that I know the union the the in the NFL is the weakest of all anyway that's not like major league baseball which is a much more powerful union historically um but you would have thought that at the very least there would have been some kind of closing of ranks and or using of the Colin Kaepernick story to maybe create a stronger union but I didn't see any of that either yeah you know this is one of those things where stories have multiple sides and getting at the truth is difficult. Um, I interviewed uh, the heads of the NFL Players Association soon, like days after Colin Kaepernick first sat during the anthem just to get uh, you know their perspective on it and what they were going to do. And they pledged in that interview that they wanted to be there to offer solidarity and say that, you know, anybody who wants to be political, we support the rights of players to exercise their freedom of speech and all that stuff. And yet they could never work out any sort of action plan with Kaepernick. He didn't have a lot of interest in working with them. Um, And, you know, his reasons are his reasons. And they, uh, after a, an effort to try to get someone from his camp to talk to them regularly, realized that they were sort of digging in a, in a dead well. And, you know, the, the best thing, of course, I think, would have been for them to partner and figure out ways to do all kinds of actions, you know, civil disobedience, you know, take the weight off Colin's shoulders, you know, figure out a way to make it as something much broader. But they couldn't connect and do it. And, if we want to be uh, deep about it, we could say that's symbolic of the ways that the radical left and the labor movement were torn apart in the 1950s and have never been able to reintegrate themselves. Yeah, that might be a reach, but you know. No, no, no. I actually think that there's a lot to that because there is something to be said for a certain kind of, uh, you know, almost inherently conservative streak in just about every union in the United States. Yeah. I mean, we're seeing that now with the kinds of demands, and I put that in quotes, that are coming up around COVID and in the National Basketball Players Association, what they've been saying has given me like a migraine headache nail to my brain. Um, it's like, what kind of solidarity do these folks practice? And it's, it's just, it, it boggles my mind. And I, I think that um, in this case, though, I don't know if I would put it all on a conservative streak in the union. I mean, it was much more that 
that, you know, and Colin isn't alone in this at all, but like there's a generation of, of young radicals who see unions as an absolute irrelevancy to what they're trying to do. And that's a, that's a tragedy. You know, that's a terrible thing. And uh, that, I think that that's really what played itself out in this case. And I think also there's probably something to be said for the fact that uh, it's probably harder to have a strong union when the average career is three years. Oh, oh my gosh. No, the union's in a very difficult situation um, just materially because the strike weapon is a little tough if you're asking people to give up basically a third of the income they'll ever make in their entire lives. Absolutely. All right. So in the time we have remaining, I want to ask you a couple of things. I know I just wrap up the the Kaepernick uh, the Kaepernick effect by asking you just broadly, what would we if if you and I were speaking ten or twenty years from now, and I asked you, what would you say are the lasting impacts of that whole Kaepernick episode? What do you think you might say? Well, who knows what the world's going to look like then? But if it looks like, I hope it'll look. I would say something like, well. You know, the organizing of college athletes, the eradication of Native American mascotry, the uh, the different relationships that exist broadly between coaches and players. Uh, these are all things that wouldn't happen without that initial rebellion and in the ways that it spread. I hope that is true. All right. Uh, in the in the last few minutes, I want to talk a little bit about some other stories and storylines in sports that you think that might be worth following for those of us from the left politically. One, I'm I'm very interested in. I don't know how much you followed about it, but we may not have a baseball season next season. Uh, it looks like we may be headed for yet another baseball lockout. Uh, do you can you speak a little bit to some of the labor issues that might be at play there, and or what that says maybe broadly about American sports? Whew. I mean, the baseball situation is, is a very, very difficult one because the league itself is in a state of crisis uh, because the average age of a particular uh, fan, of a fan in Major League Baseball is the oldest of all the sports. And so they're desperate to figure out how to, how to make the sport more attractive to younger people. And there, there's a fear about what what the new collective bargaining collective bargaining agreement would look like whether it should be something that accounts for the fact that this could be a sport that I love by the way but that's you know that's have a great deal of potential difficulty um and so we're going to have to see what that looks like i mean it it's it's so i mean existential you know like in terms of what what they're trying to do. I mean, there's a fear that, um, you know, that salaries are dropping dramatically, that there's collusion taking place. Uh, well, that's not even a fear. I mean, that's the fear is that it's collusion, but salaries have dropped in Major League Baseball. You see all these big contracts. And so they feel like there's this artificial effort to keep salaries down and it could cause a big, a big fight. Um, and so we're going to see what happens in this case. I mean, I'm always with labor against management, except in extremely specific circumstances. So, I mean, but hopefully, uh, I don't know, hopefully the players can get the right kind of deal and feel like they're, you know, being exploited just a little bit less. Yeah. And baseball is not only uh, the sport with the oldest average, you know, audience, it's also extremely white and it's also extremely affluent. Baseball is the kind of sport that is played in gated communities in Southern California and in Florida and in places like that. It is uh, it is one of these sports that 
is almost, you know, just kind of peripheral for the for for most of the country. And yet, you know, people like me who obsess about it are just like, yeah. you know, ridiculous. And also we gotta remember it's white and affluent from a US perspective. I mean, it is poor and in the streets for the greatest players we have, which are coming out of the Dominican Republic and Venezuela and Puerto Rico and uh, Japan. I mean, South Korea. I mean, there's so much talent in the game these days that it's it's amazing to watch. I mean, I, I feel like this. It's. In, I mean, if we could just say, if I could just say this for a second as a digression. I mean, I think Major League Baseball. If I think if I gave uh, Rob Manfred a billion dollars in cash, he would say, "Great, I have something to start a fire with." Like they have so many, I think, I don't think I've seen this many charismatic young players since the mid nineties and they have no idea what to do with it. They have no idea how to market them. People like Vlad Guerrero Jr. should be household names for goodness sakes. And they don't know what to do with it. And it's pathetic. I mean, if this was the NBA running it, I mean, kids would be, you know, rocking out their Vlad jerseys or, I mean, I really do believe that there's, there's something there at the major league level that can attract masses of people. Uh, but they don't know how to unlock it because they're all caught up in this cable money mentality that says, as long as we're getting paid big time from these local cable outlets, we're going to be just fine. They're terrible stewards of the game. Oh, there's no question. There's no question about that. And it also sometimes feels like there's something cultural about baseball that's just out of step with the culture that we have now. I mean, baseball isn't exactly the instant gratification sport. It takes a long time. It's it's played over a long season. Every game individually is not high stakes, but collectively they are, you know, so it's sort of a different kind of game that somehow doesn't feel 21st century America doesn't feel very of the moment. I mean, it, it wasn't supposed to feel 20th century America. It was created as a pastoral game for urban, uh, the new urban middle class. So they could harken back to like fields and, and, you know, and wheat or whatever, you know? And so, so that's what baseball was always supposed to be. It was nostalgic at its very birth. I just feel like, you know, as someone who's become post pandemic, like an utter born again, baseball fanatic, because some of these players have really caught my eye. I, I just think that there's something there that people are missing out on because baseball doesn't know how to say to the world, hey, there's something you should see here and you might want to check it out. I mean, my God, Bo Bichette, for goodness sakes. I feel like if Bo Bichette existed in any other cultural realm, he'd be like, you know, posters on the wall of, of young teens. And, uh, you know, instead it's like, who's Bo Bichette? Yeah, well, as uh, speaking as an Angels fan, at least I had Shohei Otani this year. Yeah, but Shohei Otani, who's the greatest thing since Babe Ruth and probably better than Babe Ruth, has to deal with Stephen A. Smith saying, oh, no one cares or knows who he is because he doesn't yep. speak. And it's just like, shut up. You know, it's like you don't even like sports. You get paid so much money and you don't even like the games. I'm accused of that sometimes, not liking sports. I'll watch Shohei anytime. That's showtime to me. Shohei is the best. And my God, I, I saw him against the Orioles here. It was, it was unbelievable. And it's just, and that's part of the problem is like, you can't have people talk about baseball who hate baseball. That's right. All right. Um, really quickly, uh, CTE. The NFL was deathly afraid of CTE at one point a few years ago, and you don't hear as much about it now. Maybe it's just COVID and everything that's happened since then, Trump, fascism, apocalypse, all of these type of things. But um, is there anything new being learned about CTE? Is the NFL still worried that this could potentially harm the cash cow? 
Uh, they feel very confident that the rule changes they've done about hits to the head and whatnot and, and lowering the practice time, that was really the key move is lessening full contact practices um, is a game changer because so much of CTE is about repetitive hits. Look, football will never be safe. It's like saying you're going to invent a safe cigarette. It just ain't happening. You can have a better filter and less tar, but that cigarette is still going to give you the big C. And I think that uh, what Major League Baseball has realized, which the NFL needs to realize, is, well, let me rephrase that, because I was, I was trying to connect it with baseball, but I think I lost the thread, because um, you still got me with baseball on the brain. I'm thinking about Vlad Jr. Um, hey, 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 I make no apologies for baseball. That's, that's awesome to think about Vlad Jr. too. It just makes me smile. But, but I think that the NFL is realizing that, um, that this is still an existential threat to the sport. The lessening of people who play at the youth level, you know, they're working, they're putting all their money and all their shoulders into making sure that it stays uh, as the number one attraction in the U.S. I mean, because, you know, the NFL is scared too. You know, young generation, more competition for eyeballs. Uh, you know, this fear is across sports that the general fan is aging and, you know, that is not a good recipe for long-term growth. Somebody who's never really watched sports, doesn't really care about Colin Kaepernick or football or anything like that. What is it that you would want them to take from your book? I'd want them to take from the idea that we have a young generation in this country that is not going to settle for the things that other generations have settled for. And that people who are not of that generation can't just fold their arms and say, you know, please come save us. Uh, I think what we need to do is figure out ways how to support this young generation, support them materially, support them ideologically, support them organizationally as they attempt to create a world worth living in. Um, Because I think that's going to be the test of the next 20, 30 years. And I'll say on that, on that note is that, you know, when I started writing this book, I felt pretty pessimistic. I mean, the pandemic was starting, you know, kids are at home and all that. Uh, I started to get really optimistic after talking to these folks. It it changed me and I'll, I'll always be grateful to that for them. Well, this is a book that absolutely needs to be uh, a stocking stuffer under your tree, uh, you know, behind the menorah, whatever it is, whatever it might be. Uh, Dave Zirin's book, The Kaepernick Effect, Taking a Knee, Changing the World. Go to an independent bookstore and get yourself a copy of that. And if you don't have that option, then I guess Amazon would be acceptable. Um, But uh, Bookshop.org, they get all their stock from indie stores. Well, there you go. Bookshop.org. I I should have plugged that one instead of saying the dreaded word Amazon, but whatever. So I'll be crucified later. That's okay. Dave Zirin at Edge of Sports on Twitter. (laughs) At Edge of Sports on Twitter. Edge of Sports is the podcast. Of course, he's the sports editor at The Nation. Dave is always great. Dave, thanks again for chatting with us. Well, thank you, Eric. Listeners, thank you as always for the continued support. Go to Counterpunch, get your subscriptions. We'll chat again real soon. (laughs) 